We're going to move from the canon into uh, a question that uh, very much plagues the contemporary church. <clears throat> and that is, um, and I don't want to get stuck here because, see all these points? These are all points I want to make today because next time we're on a new topic. Okay, and you can see I'm not very far down. <clears throat> but the topic is big enough that you might want to stay here. So I'm going to try to answer it as to, uh, um, clear as I can and quickly as I can. Some people will ask, when it comes to certain things uh, like human sexuality, the Orthodox Anglican movement will reference, in addition to the New Testament, it will reference the Old Testament. Okay, uh, And they'll say, you know, for example, in the contemporary struggles with homosexuality, um, and acting out one's uh, feeling, homosexual feelings. Um, if Father Michael references, well, you know, in the Old Testament, it says, boom, 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 boom. The rebuttal is, ah, but the Old Testament also says all these other things. Like, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, and if you, you know, have sexual relations with a woman while she's menstruating, you, I forget what happens. I think you're... And gets cut off, but anyway, um, and uh, don't go there. <laughs> and um, and you know, so how come you don't, you know, apply that? Why are you just picking on these poor people who already are struggling in life? Okay, and so they'll they'll ask that question. In other words, you're picking and choosing. You're saying, oh, well, we're going to keep this out of the Old Testament, but we can eat pork. You know, where the Jews couldn't eat pork. Yeah, polygamy, right? Christine definitely is not in favor of polygamy, but my, my other wife, she, let, she thinks it's okay. Um, by the way, for those of you who I just remember, that's a joke. Ha <laughs> ha, funny. Okay, so, um, so what's the answer? What's the answer? These people are saying you're picking and choosing out of the Old Testament. You know, you're just being mean, Deacon Susie, by being associated with this church because you're not applying all the scriptures. How come you're only applying some of them? So what's the answer? The answer is what we've discussed earlier today, and that is tradition. We go back to the early fathers and, and how did they interpret it. Yep, that, that is part of the answer, Bob. You're, you're right, is we look back at the early, at the early fathers of the church and, and for reasons more deeply that we'll go into in a minute, they would say that polygamy is contrary to, to God's law, um, but um, acting out one's homosexuality, uh, that is also contrary to God's law, um, but they would say uh, that other things are, are not, we're freed from. But that is part of the answer, but what else is the, the main part of the answer? The New Testament negates something that was... Nope. That's part of it as well, and that, that's starting to get into the, 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 the main part of it, is that Paul makes it very clear in the New Testament that there are certain laws of the Jews that were meant to distinguish the Jewish people from the Gentiles. The Jewish people were God's people, and the Gentiles were heathens. And there were certain laws called the particular laws of the Jews that were established by God for a time in order to distinguish 
Jewish people from non-Jewish people. And what does Paul say about that in the New Testament? That we are freed from the particular law. We are freed from the particular law, okay? Because we Gentiles, and most of us here are, are Gentiles, have been grafted in, right, to the covenant. We are by faith heirs of the covenant given to Abraham. And the distinction between Jew and Gentile has been washed away by what? The blood of Jesus. Yeah. So there's the particular law of the Jews, which was given by God for a time to distinguish Jews from heathens, from the heathen, the Gentiles. Paul tells us in the New Testament that we are free in Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law. So in obedience to Christ, we are obedient to the law. Okay, the law serves Christ, not Christ the law. Okay, and so, and that the distinction between Jew and Gentile has been washed away by the blood of Christ. So a person would say, oh, okay, well that makes sense to to some degree, but you're still referencing, uh, you know, these, these Old Testament laws that were applicable to Jews. For example, how do you know that all the laws regarding homosexuality weren't just simply to distinguish them from the Gentiles? Because homosexual acts were more accepted in Gentile culture. So isn't this part also of what Jesus has washed away in his, in his blood. Well, the answer to that then is that the New Testament says that while we are freed from the particular law of the Jew, we are in our obedience to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, bound to that law which is called moral. We are still bound to the law not directly to itself, but out of obedience to Christ, we, we, we live out that law which is called moral. This is why we still read the Ten Commandments in church. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd say, oh, well, those don't count. That's, that's been washed away, the, right? But no, the laws applying to God's relationship with us as his people and our relationship to one another, I, I really got to get a lot out, but then I'll go into questions, is still bound, we are still bound to, by our obedience to Christ. But the next thing then is also, well, wait a minute, doesn't polygamy deal with morality? Uh, what, you know, what about uh, other things in the Bible? What about the fact that the Jews used to believe that God wasn't the only God. He was just the biggest God on the block. In other words, the other gods were, he could beat them up, okay? And so they moved from, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, not polygamy, that's... Polytheism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, polytheism, right? Wouldn't it be polytheism? Okay, but but all right, but what's just many gods? Because they wouldn't say these other gods are in his court, though. Yeah, polytheistic to a monotheistic religion. So this is what they'd say, that look, there is a development of revelation within the scripture, right? God reveals firstly 
And there are things he tolerates for a time, but then calls his people out of that, right? God doesn't give the whole of Revelation to Adam and Eve. There are things that do develop. And so God's people move from polytheism, and perhaps in in a sense what you're saying, Bob, to an understanding that part of the oneness of God isn't just his uniqueness and his superiority to the other gods, but that he is the only God, okay? Uh, and And then you see, so you see a move from an understanding of God as one with Adam and Eve to kind of this idea that he is, you know, the God of Israel, okay, to the idea that he is truly the only God to the fulfillment of God's revelation in the New Testament, which is what? God is... Holy Trinity. Trinity, right, the name of your church, right. So we move from, at one point, polytheism to a more mature understanding of God's revelation and monotheism to the fulfillment of God's revelation to man in his son, Jesus Christ, which is that the one God is three distinct persons, okay? Same thing with um, polygamy. Polygamy is accepted in, in the culture for a time. They begin to move away from that, right, towards an idea of one man for one woman, which Jesus later says it's what God intended from the beginning, and they moved away from that. One man, one woman, that's how God created it. Two, in the New Testament, where Paul begins to develop a sacramental notion of holy matrimony. So you move from polygamy to monogamy to a sacramental notion of marriage as holy matrimony, which isn't always the same thing as marriage, by the way, but that's another class, okay? So you see this development. Same thing with uh, slavery as well. It's accepted for, first you see it in the Bible, where, you know, they're abusing these people and, you know, and and so forth, and God does set them free from that type of thing. Then you see it as part of the culture, but it wasn't like what we think of as in, uh, you know, slavery in the South, okay? It was actually this whole institution where if a person, rather than dying or going onto the streets and becoming uh, maybe a prostitute or just die, could, you know, come into someone's household and really, in one sense, be an indentured servant would be more the concept. And, but the church never says, slavery, good. No, it moves away from that towards, if you, Paul says, if you can get your freedom, do it. And he tells uh, Philemon's uh, master to do what? Let him go, free. You're equal in Christ, right? Yeah, maybe it was Onesimus. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Let the uh, tape record that. That was Bob. Uh, that was, oh, it wasn't no, it Onesimus? No, it was Philemon was the uh, slave owner. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's all coming back to me now, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Um, okay, so you see when it comes to God, when it comes to holy matrimony, you can see a development of revelation that finds its fulfillment in the coming of Christ and the New Testament and the apostolic age. 
Okay? When you take something like um, homosexuality, for example, acting out these acts, okay? And I, I do want to make it clear. Uh, is homosexuality the unforgivable sin? No. Uh, is it the worst sin, though, ever? No. Is it any different than heterosexuals doing things sexually that God does not intend them to do? No. Okay. All right. Are they loved by God? Yes. Okay. All right. Good. Just want to make sure of that. All right. So you take that. It is not part of God's intent in creation. It emerges as something um, among the, the heathen that is rejected by God in the holiness code. Okay, as not being uh, acceptable to God. And then in the New Testament, it actually is also not only mentioned, but is strengthened. It's solidified and strengthened. And the Old Testament primarily references, I'm, this will sound crude, but I'm just trying to be academic here, okay? Primarily that men shouldn't be doing these acts with other men because one of them is taking the part of the woman and, you know, you don't want to act like women. Be a man, right? So, you know, that was the idea. But in, in, in the New Testament, it goes beyond that to establish sex within the context of the, the complementary-ism? Complementary nature. Okay, thank you. Uh, of a man and woman coming together representing God and his church, but it also goes to condemn not only male homosexuality, but actually specifically mentions lesbianism in Romans chapter 1. So in the development of God's revelation, it starts out wrong, it continues to be wrong, and then in the New Testament is actually strengthened. Okay, Where polygamy in the development of doctrine is moved away from, and monogamy becomes the norm, and then a sacramental notion of holy matrimony. Same thing with polytheism. They move to monotheism and then to an understanding of the Trinity. So do you see how within the canon there is a development of revelation, that God doesn't reveal everything at once. There's a movement towards revelation. God is revealing more and more to his people. He's forming his people, right? And then it finds its fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ and the writing of the New Testament, okay? And so it's not a matter of picking and choosing. Now, when I first went uh, to, uh, to get my um, MDiv uh, in seminary um, as an Anglican, um, they taught me the first part of all this stuff. They would say stuff like, well, you know, a lot of people are picking and choosing, but, you know, Paul says we're free from, you know, the law, so why can you pick out certain things and not others? And I go, oh, oh. And then they'd use arguments like this. Well, of course the Ten Commandments say that uh, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife because your wife was considered part of your property and you don't want your goods damaged, right? Because then they're lessened. Women are like equal to cattle. And I go, oh. What they never taught me was the rebuttal to that, that, ah, there's some truth to that. Because in God's revelation of things, man sometimes accepts it, you know, where he is. He doesn't always fully understand the revelation. You know, the prophets, everything they wrote, they were like, wow, when Jesus comes and, and he's on the cross, they're going to be like, wow, when I wrote Psalm 22, I was writing about him. I mean, they, they, 
they don't understand everything that they're writing in its fullness. So they might understand, yes, I want to protect property, but God has a fuller understanding of the Ten Commandments that goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the human condition and into the life of his people and into the life of his church that will be born from the side of his son, Jesus Christ. So it may be true that some of the Jews at the time the Ten Commandments were revealed were like, yeah, that, that sounds good to me. Don't want my cattle hurt, right? But that doesn't mean that that was God's understanding of it. God had a much deeper understanding of how it would be applied within the life of his people and eventually in the life of his church. See, the first time, I was only taught the first part. Like, well, what you have are these bunch of, uh, you know, uh, patriarchal pigs who got together and didn't want their wives to be, you know, handled by other men because they'd be, you know, damaged goods. So they came up with this. Oh, that doesn't sound good. And now you want to go out there and make people live that way? Well, I don't want to do that. That's what they did with the slaves, you know. Oh, that doesn't sound good. You see what I mean? But they only told half of that. They never gave the answer. Here's the problem in our Orthodox movement. Most of our people say, yeah, we know what's right and what's wrong. But if someone were to come in and sit down with you, right, a priest of the liberal the new liberal movement church of the what's happening now, and start telling you all these other things, well, why are you picking and choosing? You know, are you going to put your son to death if he steals steals grapes from the vineyard of your neighbor? Because it says that in Leviticus, whatever, right? Well, no. You're going to, would you be able to defend yourself? And that's the problem, is if the laity and even some of the clergy of the Orthodox movement, can't give a proper rebuttal to that challenge, they're going to be seen, and perhaps rightly so, because if you can't give a defense of what you believe, maybe you'll... (laughs) But you're going to be seen as bigoted. You know? Um, This is why I, you um, uh, you know, say to people, well, look, we need to be... We need to apply the Word of God in all things. Otherwise, we're just... We're, we're, we're just prejudiced against certain people that live differently than we are, right? And we don't want to be that. We want to be for the scripture, not against this person because they're struggling with homosexuality. You see, we want, to, we want to help them and love them because God loves them. And we want them to know the, the, fuller, the fuller life and healing that can be theirs in, in Christ, okay? Um, I had uh, two guys in, in, in one parish um, who, who came to my church, and I'm not going to tell this whole, whole story now because of time, um, but they came to my church, and after a time in being there, they had me over to their house and um, uh, made cookies and, and you know, revealed to me, you know, Father Michael, we, we want you to know we're, we're gay. And this was, was, was not a shock uh, to me. Um, and they said, but we want you to know how much we appreciate finding this church. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, because we go to a lot of churches and we say, we want to hear the gospel. And they say, well, here's the gospel. It's all good. It's all good. Well, what about what God is? God just wants you to be happy. Well, but we have these chains that have dragged us down in our life right? 
They both were HIV positive. They felt betrayed by their counselors who told them to embrace this, right? Um, and the, these churches were saying, well, bless those chains. We'll just call them holy. That's all. Don't worry about it. And they said, so we weren't comfortable there because we want to die at least being open to what God might have to say to us. I was like, wow. And they said, but then we go to other churches that preach the gospel and we find that we're not welcome there. And they said, so we really like the home we have found. Are we welcome here? And I said, do you care about what God has to say to you? Yes. Are you open that that might be very difficult for you to hear? Yes. Are you committed to doing the best you can, and if you fall, repenting? Yes. Do you love Jesus? Yes. Yeah, guys, well, yeah, welcome. Great. You know, that's different than someone coming to me and saying, well, uh, you know, I'm a gossiper. Well, <laughs> No, you're not. You know who's really a gossiper? No, that's a joke. Uh, No, I'm a gossiper, and I can't... There's nothing I can do about it, Father. This is just the way I am. I've always been a gossiper, and I always will be a gossiper, and that's it. You know what? You really shouldn't even be receiving communion, man. See, you know how I said it was a man? You all thought it was a lady, didn't you? See? Uh, uh, But, you know, you should... Because what you're saying is that may be the word of God, but I don't care. This is just the way I am, this way I'm going to be. To me, that person has a much higher, um, bigger problem than the person who says, look, I was abused as a child or I was neglected as a child or whatever, and I have struggled with this all my life. I want to be right with God. I'm doing the best I can. I'm not going to lie to you, Father. I fall sometimes. But you know what? I really am open to, to the word of God in my heart. You know, you know I, I, I love you too in the Lord, you know? And so that's uh, very, very important. Uh, now, I want to move away from that because I don't want this last hour to be about homosexuality and not about the scripture, okay? But that's an example of how it can be applied. Jesus says we're to hold the truth and to share it in love. love. Unfortunately, you have churches where they think the gospel is all you need is love. Right? That's not the gospel. That's John Lennon. Okay? Then you have the other side. They think the gospel is the truth, but they don't know how to apply it in love. Which, by the way, is not always easy. It's not. You know? That line between trying to convict someone for the sake of drawing them back into Christ and judging someone, that's hard. Right? But they just want, they just have the truth. But they really don't. According to the Bible, if they have not love, they have nothing. So you have some churches that all you need is love, da-da-da. And then over here, you have just pure bigotry under the guise of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? The Bible is clear. You're not supposed to choose between them. You're supposed to apply the truth in love. Because only in giving truth in love are you giving people Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is love, because God is love, and Jesus Christ is truth. Truth is not a statement. Truth is not a dogma. Truth is not a creed. Truth is a person, and he has a name, 
and his name is Jesus. So to give someone the truth in love is to give them Christ. To give them just truth or to give them just love is to give them a lie. Bob? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 one of the reasons I'm asking is because uh, I think it addresses the problem that you mentioned at the start of your discussion. I think it addresses it much better than drawing the distinction or trying to draw a distinction uh, between the moral and the ceremonial laws mm-hmm. uh, of the Jews because they did not recognize that there was any difference mm-hmm. um, in the significance of mm-hmm. any of them. They were all God's mm-hmm. commandments, and all people yeah. were required yeah. to all of the commandments. But Paul does. He recognizes the distinction, and he says we, we are freed from certain ceremonials and how we eat and what's clean and what's not clean. Of course, Peter with the, the sheet that comes down. But he also says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Adulterers, fornicators, gossipers will not enter the kingdom of God. So don't be like, "Oh, I'm in Jesus. I'm free." You know, G- G- you know, <laughs> Jesus is 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 uh, uh, you know is not the lead singer for the birds. You know, <laughs> so. Can I get that reference from you later? Yeah. Um, one thing is, if you look up um, um, Peter Moore, look up Peter Moore, the Bible. And homosexuality, I think that's what it is. And he, he addresses this in, in a small point, talking about the development of doctrine within the canon. But this is different than the development of doctrine after the canon, which we're going to talk about in a minute, because that's the, that's the argument of Roman Catholicism, right? That there's a development of doctrine after the canon, okay? Um, which also the position of Mormonism, by the way, you know? And so, um, uh, so, but that within the canon, certainly there's a development of, of doctrine. Adam and Eve did not have the law. The law came with Moses, you, you know. Um, you know, the covenant uh, was established uh, with Abraham. But it's not fulfilled, the law or the covenant or the prophets, until the coming of Christ himself. And so it's very clear that within the, the canon, there is a development of revelation. What would be a better word? Not really a development of revelation, but a progressive revelation. A progressive revelation by God to us in the canon. A progressive revelation of God to us in the canon, finding its fulfillment in the person of Christ and in the New Testament. Okay. Um, Oh, it's right here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Scripture and Homosexuality by Peter Moore. Scripture and Homosexuality by Peter Moore. Okay. Um, okay, now we're going to talk just for a second. So if there is a progression of revelation, and I think that should be clear to all of us, that we, we go from polygamy, not polygamy, polytheism to monotheism to the Holy Trinity in the Bible. Now, it's alluded to all, you know, from the beginning, but we see it being revealed in fullness over time. You see many different movements 
We go from covenant to covenant in law to grace in Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, however, this is different um, from what is called a development of doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, in the early church, what they would say is that once the apostolic age was concluded, that the faith of the church can be articulated anew within each generation, but it must not contradict that which has come down to us from Christ and the apostles. In other words, you can give it um, um, uh, a new, you can articulate it anew, but you can't come up with a new dogma, right? So if, if, the, if the church was to say, um, well, um, uh, for example, like the Shakers believe that their founder and somebody was uh, the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. You can't say that that's the development of doctrine, okay? That's something new, okay? But if you, uh, you know, if I'm giving, um, if I'm teaching on the Trinity, and I'm writing in today's day and age, where we know a, a lot more about science and so forth, and so I use uh, um, an example from science that, uh, you know, water, ice, and steam are one substance, uh, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, right, uh, H2O, but they are three distinct manifestations of that one substance, okay? Would that have been used as an argument by Gregory of Nyssa? No, probably not. Probably not the same uh, un understanding. Oh, maybe they would. But anyway, just pretend they wouldn't. Um, and you, you know, or uh, so I can maybe give a new articulation of the truth. Okay, but I can't say. However, there's something completely new. So, for example, uh, one time I had a meeting with one of the liberal bishops uh, uh, in the diocese I was serving in. And um, I, I said, can I ask you a question about this whole um, homosexual um, thing? Yeah, sure, Michael. And I said, why are you arguing that God is doing something new, that before, you know, the church was, you know, bigoted and blind, and now God is finally getting through with this new revelation? I said, what you want to try to do is argue like those of you who are in favor of the ordination of, of, of women as priests and bishops, that it's not a new revelation. Rather, it's a fuller understanding of what's already been revealed. What you want to argue, even though it's a bunch of bunk, is that the, the, the matter in the sacrament of holy matrimony doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a man and a woman as icons of God in the church. It can be a man and a man and a woman and a woman. You want to argue that the matter of the sacrament doesn't matter and that this is a fuller understanding of what's already been revealed, not a new revelation. He said, oh, would you be willing to come and speak on this? No. <laughs> I said, I'm just kind of curious. I don't really want to help you out here. I said, but how come like no one's thought of that? And he said, because for us it's a justice issue, Michael. You're trying to wrap your mind around how we would comprehend it theologically. 
for us, it's a justice issue, you know, not a theological issue. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's why I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll see you later. Uh, in other words, we're not doing theology here. Uh, yeah, well, from the, yeah, from the scripture. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we tell people, don't pray for justice. You don't want justice in this world. You, you, you want mercy, not justice. Um, um, so anyway, um, where was I going with that? Oh, the idea is that in the development, it has to be, the church has to decide, is something that we're dealing with a fuller understanding of that which has already been revealed? If the answer is yes, we believe it is, then we begin to look at it from um, the point of view of Scripture and tradition and to see how it would be applicable today. So I'll give you an example that I think is, is clear. So the church, you go back in time just a short time, and nowhere in, in the church, Catholic Christendom or Protestant Christendom, were there uh, women deacons, right? So then the question becomes, okay, uh, can there be women deacons? Well, I'm, I'm heading there, Joan. I'm heading there. Well, you go back just a few years, there's, there's no woman deacon anywhere in the church in the world. Okay, that doesn't mean it wasn't true in the ancient church. We're going to get there. Right. But, but nowhere in the world are, were there women deacons. You go back, I don't know how many years now, but 30 maybe. No women deacons anywhere, okay, uh, 30 plus years ago, anywhere in, in the world, okay? Um, so you say, okay. So the first question is, can women be deacons? The first thing we have to ask is, in discerning whether there can be women deacons, would this be possibly a fuller understanding of what God has already revealed? Or would this be a complete innovation? Well, I believe the answer is A. That it's possible that this would be a fuller understanding of what's already been revealed. Well, okay. Then if that's true, we should be able to talk about it then from both scripture and tradition. Okay, well, now let's look at the scripture. So we look at the scripture, and we, and we see that there are references uh, to women deacons in the, in the New Testament, and that the same word is used, okay, for the male deacons. Then we see in the early church that there were many women deacons, particularly in the East. And then we look, because we're looking at tradition, we look at the liturgies, and we see that the ordination rite was the same as when a man was ordained. Now, the function was different, okay? But the function of the diaconate was hardly ever the same for more than 10 minutes in the church's history. So that becomes com a complicated issue, okay? But the, um, the function was different, but the ordination was the same, okay? And it has a biblical precedent, okay? Then you say, okay, well, in dialogue with the Eastern Church, how do they feel about it? They actually believe, at least in theory, if not in practice, that there were women deacons, that it fell because of purposes of function, it fell out of use, but that at least in theory, it could be reactivated, that it's not contrary to that which is Catholic. 
Uh, and so, yeah, okay. So now the argument becomes, if we accept this, that it's a fuller understanding of what has been revealed. It's not something new. It's not a complete innovation, okay? Um, now that gets much more complicated if you start talking about the priesthood, okay? But do you see that first example that you're saying, ah, okay. But if someone is saying, um, well, we uh, are going to say something uh, and it's, uh, um, we believe in the real absence. <laughs> Jesus Christ is not present in the Eucharist. Well, is, is that a biblical position? That Jesus Christ is not present in the Eucharist? No. Uh, was, the, was it the belief of the ancient church that Jesus was not present in the Eucharist? No. <laughs> okay, so when you start having a knee-jerk reaction to the extremes of transubstantiation and some of the superstition attached to the sacrament in medieval uh, Roman Catholicism, and you move to something of, in a belief that Jesus is completely absent, you are innovating. You're not returning to a fuller understanding of what has already been revealed. You are innovating. So then the question becomes, can we even entertain that? No. No. You can't entertain that, that Christ is absent, because it would be a complete innovation. This ties into something we're going to talk about a lot at the next class. At the time of the English Reformation, I'm going to give you examples. You tell me whether they were innovations or a return to the patristic, that is the early church, the patristic faith and order under the authority of Scripture. We said that the Bishop of Rome does not have jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in this realm. Was that an innovation or a return to the practice, faith, and order of the early church. It was a return. He did not have jurisdiction clearly for the first seven and a half centuries, and even after that it took several more centuries for his claim to jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in that realm to solidify. So for most of church history, he did not have a solidified jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in that realm. We said that clergy can be married. Was that an innovation or a return? It was a return. That's right. So it's something that the church is, is free to do. We said the Mass should be in the language of the people rather than in Latin. Was that an innovation or a return? Return. We said all bishops are equal. We said people should be able to receive both the body and the blood of Jesus. And we said Scripture is, is, holds a place of primacy and tradition is subject to it. Were those innovations or returns? Returns. The fact is, is that every major thing that was accomplished at the time of the English Reformation was not an innovation like many of the Protestant churches in the Continental Reformation, but rather was a return to the faith, order, and practice of the patristic church under the authority of Scripture. Even allowing divorce and remarriage under specific 
um, uh, instances, like in the Bible where it talks about adultery without repentance, abandonment by a believer. There was uh, 5th century canons regarding like if a person was abused or if uh, I get married to Christine and I find out that Christine's really not Christine, her real name is... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk about uh, de- development of revelation. Yeah, because I wouldn't have known until the wedding night. So, uh, yeah, that would have been a bummer. Um, uh, so, her real name is Joseph. Right. The church has said, look, there are certain things where we say, okay, it can be done. So, even that, although the church kind of made it into a, kind of went to an extreme on that. Even that was a return to that which is biblical and from the ancient canons of the church. But Anglicanism, unlike Roman Catholicism, which added to the faith of the undivided Catholic Church, which by definition is not Catholic, and unlike Protestantism, which deleted, many times because of good reason, they were trying to jealously guard some good things that they felt were being abused, but still deleted from the faith practice and order of the early church, and which is also innovation, but the other way, Anglicanism thought, sought not to innovate, but rather to return the church, the Catholic church in the realm of England, to the faith, order, and practice of the patristic church under the authority of Holy Scripture. Okay? Um, and that held Anglicanism truly together from the time of the English Reformation to the mid-70s. Regardless of arguments over high church, low church, and all this other stuff, we were able to weather almost every storm until the mid-70s. Because in the mid-70s, people started to argue that innovation could happen if the church thought it was just today rather than looking at Scripture. So even if, even if, and we're not going to get into this argument today, even if the ordination of women as priests and bishops were a fuller understanding of what God has revealed, and I'll let my cards be shown, I don't believe it is, okay? But if, if it was, okay, if it was a fuller understanding, all right, um, the fact of how they went about it was innovative, in other words, it wasn't an argument from Scripture or tradition in consultation with the greater Catholic Church. It was an innovation. And once you innovate, if you're in a covenant, if I, well, I'm in the covenant with Christine. If I start innovating outside of the covenant, what happens to the covenant? It begins to break down, right? Now, that can be in a big way, like if I commit adultery, but it can also be in a small way. If I went out and bought that Mustang and brought it home, parked it in the driveway, and then announced that we now own that Mustang and got to pay the bills, that would also be a threat to the covenant, wouldn't it? If I did that unilaterally, right? Unilateral innovation dissolves covenant. Okay? So that's why Anglicanism has always said, we will not add nor delete from the faith, order, and practice of the undivided church under Holy Scripture. Okay? Um, And that's always been the Anglican position. And that's one of the reasons I'm Anglican, by the way, is because I believe we can talk about anything, 
but we have to talk about it as the body of Christ. And we can't move ahead. The, the example I often use is that if Praveen and myself and Sandra own a cottage, I might think these guys are nuts because they have this beautiful old field stone fireplace that's giving out all this heat. And I, I'm for putting in one of these new um, wood-burning stoves that, stoves that are efficient that keep the heat in. I'm probably right, right? But if I go ahead and do it, Without them being in agreement, what, do, what am I doing? I'm acting unilaterally, and I'm innovating, and I'm dissolving or greatly harming the covenant between us. Does that make sense to people? So as an Anglican, I hold the position, we can talk about anything. Of course, the first question is, is it completely an innovation? Then, you know, that settles the matter, Right. But we can talk about anything, but we have to talk about it as the body of Christ. And what position does Scripture hold in that conversation? A place of primacy. A place of primacy. The Orthodox Church believes the same thing. Same thing, give me, regarding... Well, they would say... Um, well, regarding what in particular? I believe that scripture has primacy. Yeah, well, remember I said earlier it's a little bit problematic in the way they articulate it, yeah. that for them, sacred tradition is one deposit. Within that deposit, scripture is first. Okay? And so where... Discussions yeah. might be a little different. About yeah, our discussions are... We, it, it's, it, we're... we're Saying things similar, but it's a little bit like this, okay? Where in our discussions with Rome, Scripture and tradition are two equal compatible sources of, of God's authority, and we're on, a, we're, we're on a different page altogether. Just to connect, I think, one more dot. Unilateral, unilateral innovation isn't just like a bad idea. It's sin. It's yeah. a breach of covenant, yeah. essentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 that, and that's important. And so, you know, Christine may have, you, you know, she might have a really good idea. It might be really good, right? And it's going to affect not only her, but me and the kids, right? Um, and I say, look, I'm not comfortable with it. Now, maybe someday I'll come around to it, but I'm not comfortable with it. If she simply goes ahead and does it, okay, that's going to cause, at, at uh, best, impaired communion between us, and at worst, um, uh, broken communion. Broken communion. And so there, uh, it all goes back to the Vincentian canon. <laughs> we can discuss anything, but we have to discuss it as the body of Christ, and we have to see Scripture uh, in the place of Primacy. Um, okay, let me just give you quickly this. Um, there's so much we're not going to get to today. But Scripture is the Word of God. What does this mean for the revisionists? I can summarize this uh, very well by that same bishop with whom I was talking. He says, oh, I, yeah, we believe Scripture's inspired. We believe Scripture's inspired. Um, we believe that it gives us incredible insight into the world view uh, uh, of God, the universe, creation, morality of the early Christian mind. And that's uh, applicable 
uh, and interesting for us to take into account as we struggle in our own day with who is God for us. Okay, so for you, it's interesting. You read it to give you insight, and then you kind of make your own way the best you can. Right. Yeah, don't be a bishop. It takes vows to uphold the scriptures and you had to be subject to them. But but yeah. And that's why, what does the mitre represent? The hat of the bishop, it's the mitre. No, no, the, this part. What's it represent? Yeah, it's, it's the tongues of fire coming down uh, on the apostles in the apostolic church. Right. So they are under the authority of the Spirit of God. Then the two ribbons in the back of the mitre, right? What do they represent? Right, the Old and New Testament. They're like bookmarks, okay? They represent the Old and New Testament, which means that the bishop is under the authority of God and the Word of God, okay? That's what it means. So yeah, don't be a bishop, (laughs) right? But, I mean, if someone comes to me and says, you know what, I I think the Bible has made an incredible contribution to uh, Western culture. Wow! And there are things I read in there that just give me a boost. And it it really helps me. Sometimes it's comforting and uh, it gives me insight. But I don't believe it's the Word of God. Well, okay, that's fair and that's honest. Uh, You know, hey! So, you know... I think that all that matters is that you love someone. Well, you know, buddy, I've loved a lot of people, right? Without loving a lot of people, you know? But hey, at least you're honest. But to say, yes, we believe it's the word of God, but we will do what we want, that to me is just dishonest. That's just dishonest. But um, so anyway, yeah. So that's how revisionists see it. For them, it gives them insight into the mind of the early Christian in their view of God, the creation, the order, the, our relationships with one another, and that's very helpful to them as they grapple in their own life with who Jesus is for, for them. But who are the revisionists? I mean, are they... <laughs> Turn off that tape. No, um, I, don't, I, I, I don't know. What do you mean? Are there, are there revisionists in all churches, or are there revisionists... Yeah, I... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think there's people that re see re reformers. We're reformers, right? We want to we want to reform into the image of God through the gospel. But revision is to cast a new vision, okay? And so, yeah, there's revisionists in the Roman Catholic Church. There's revisionists in um, you don't hear about them much in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I don't know if they cut off their heads or what, but. Uh, um, <laughs> Father, I'm not sure that Jesus is God. Oh, come into this room. This is where they all go who don't believe that. But yeah, no, there's revisionists everywhere. We, we, yeah. So the revisionists are, are people who, who believe that Christ as he was... As, as he came in, in the... See, I ultimately think a true revisionist... I don't get 
I, I think a true revisionist ultimately doesn't believe in the incarnation. Now, they, they, I mean, I, I think because if you believe that God himself has entered into this world in the person of Jesus, then of course he's the only means of salvation. You, do you know what I mean? In, in like a virgin birth and a resurrection? The God who created the universe has become a baby in Bethlehem? If you can buy that, there's nothing in the package that's, that you can't buy. So I ultimately think it goes back to whether they say it or not, that they aren't really sure, or they're sure that it's not true, that the second person of the Holy Trinity has truly entered into the created order in the person of Jesus. That's what I, I think it comes down to. I mean, ultimately. You know, I had someone who said one time, and I, and I like this, and the, you know, I remember it was actually a Protestant guy, evangelical, and he said, you know, what's going on in the church is not attack, an attack against the church. It's not an attack against God's people. And I'm like, I love when people talk like that. So I'm like, yeah, go. He says, a lot of people think it's about homosexuality or having sex with your neighbor, but that's not what it's about either. He said, and people think it's an attack on Holy Scripture, but it's not that either. He said, what it comes down to is it is an attack upon the king himself. And I'm like, wow, Elvis? Really? So, um, but, but you know what? In a lot of ways, the guy is right. The guy is right. You can say it's about scripture. You can say it's about homosexuality. You can say it's about bigots versus open-minded people and closed-minded people and blah, 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 blah. And I would even make the argument that it's really about ecclesiology, which was the argument I was just making a little while ago. If you have a good ecclesiology, you're not going to fall into these problems of revisionism. But this guy actually goes even deeper than that. It's not about the scripture. It's not about ecclesiology. It's not about sexuality. It's not about any of that. It's an attack upon the king. And any attack upon the king, we should be able to identify its source. You know? It's like, yeah. It's true. It's an attack upon the king. I mean, there's a lot of things. I'll give you an example. Um, I... You know, how we subject ourselves to scripture and uh, tradition. People would say, well, but, you know, what if you're not comfortable with something? What if you, you know, you're okay with this or, you know, you know, and that kind of thing. Well, you have two choices. You can struggle and allow yourself to be molded into God's image by the power of the scripture, or you can mold the scripture into your image and what you're comfortable with. And that's what it comes, you know, comes down to. But I'll give you kind of a fun example. I grew up without knowing it as a monophysite. <laughs> a monophysite, my favorite heresy. Um, for them, Jesus is divine. Period. If he was human, his humanity kind of got <laughs> absorbed into his divinity. And I didn't really understand that. Now, most Western Christians are Arians. They emphasize the humanity of Jesus at the expense of his divinity. Okay? I was a weird kid. Okay? And uh, you have a weird daughter. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Who's, I think is a monophysite, too. And, uh, and I, was, I was weird in that, for me, Jesus is God. God is Jesus. Now, that's a true statement, but... I so emphasized his divinity that it probably was at the expense of, of his humanity and kind of had as a little kid this idea that Jesus kind of just absorbed humanity into himself. But, you know, 
Anyway, as I grew older, uh, much older, and, and got into reading the scriptures in Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon, so I was much older, I was probably six, um, and, and as I read these things, I was like, oh, there's one person of Jesus Christ who's fully God and fully man, and the two natures are perfectly united, but perfectly distinct. They cannot be confused nor divided. I'm wrong. So I had to tweak my Christology to be subject to the teaching of the church under the authority of Scripture. Now, that's a fun example. Now, there's other examples I'm not going to share with you. Things that I grew up with and things I would like to do probably still today that simply are not of God and I wish they were. I wish the Bible said, blessed are the fat. You know, blessed are Chinese buffets. You know, I mean, blessed are filet. Blessed is the gluttonous, for they shall inherit the buffet. That's what I wish it says, okay? But the fact is, is it doesn't say that. Now, I can buy into all of this, accept who you are genetically and blah, blah, blah. You have a disposition to this. Fat is beautiful and all of that. I could buy into all of that or I can realize that I have an unhealthy disposition by my genetic makeup and by my environment as a child because my family ingrained this, you know, even though I can't blame them, I got to take responsibility for what I put in my mouth, um, you know, but, you know, you know, so, you know, the fact is, is that I may have a genetic disposition to overeating. I may also have, it may also come from influences from my environment. I don't know, psychologically, is it possible? Do I have, could I have a genetic disposition to eating too much? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. And can I also, could my environment as a child have affected my understanding of food? Okay. So there it is. So I've always been this way. Right? No. Well, but I don't remember a time when I wasn't. Therefore, God created me this way. Therefore, being gluttonous is good. Well, you know what? Pedophiles, God bless them, say the same thing. They don't remember a time because they were 99.9% of those who are pedophiles were sexually abused as children. Am I on the right track here? Mm -hmm. Probably. And, I don't know what the statistics yeah, are. But, but their sexual relation went into arrest, usually at the age at which they were sexually abused. So if they were abused at five, it went into arrest at five, okay? Um, uh, and so, and from what I understand, apart from miracles, psychi psychiatrists will say there's not much we can really do except help them cope the best we can, but there's, there's no way to quote-unquote fix them. Is yeah, that's, that that's true? Okay. True. So, gosh, they don't remember a time, and I'm really speaking with some sympathy here to, to them, okay? And I also understand the great pain they cause their victims also, okay? But, now, having said that, um, they don't remember a time probably when it wasn't this way. There was probably some disposition in environment and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But that doesn't mean it's all good. And, 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 and that's my point. But there are cultures now that are embracing, what's the word, pedophilia? Mm -hmm. I think it's somewhere, there are places in South America, correct me where I'm wrong, where it's down now to the age of 12. 
that you can give consent. And so you have 40, 50-year-old men having relations with 12-year-olds, and it's acceptable by law. And so, and all of this comes in under the guise of, I don't remember when it wasn't this way, this is how I was made, da, da, da. So there's lots of things. I have, a, you know, all kinds of dispositions, you know. Um, I, I, I'm not going to share them, but, you know, they're not a god. You know, we all do. Um, and, you know, the, uh, but that doesn't mean they're of God. And so we have two choices. We can then mold the scripture to say what we want it to say. You know, the joke, blessed are the gluttonous, for they shall inherit the buffet. Or we can repent when we fall and ask God to mold us and shape us into him, image, his image and likeness by the power and authority of his holy word. And you know, true freedom is not choosing between my bondages to overeat or not. True freedom is walking in the grace of God by his word and being set free from the power that bondage has over me. Do you see the difference? We mistakenly think that freedom is equated with choice. When often you're, you're, you're in bondage and in slavery and don't even know it. True freedom is being obedient to God because it's only in obedience to God that we can be set free from the power that these things have over us to greater or lesser degrees. It's, it's interesting and paradoxical that few, few people would argue that it's okay to be obedient to the civil law which restrains pedophilia. Mm-hmm. And whether that's your disposition from birth or not, yeah. regardless of what's happened to you, um, it's just against the law. And right. you're responsible for conforming your behavior to the requirements of civil law. Um, somehow it becomes problematic when we say you're responsible for conforming your behavior to the requirements of the law of God, yeah. regardless of where you came from or how you came to be, yeah. where you are. And there are a number of people in this country don't like being told what to do. Uh, but, disobedience. But, but there's a you know there's another component of it I think, and that is, and that is uh, people just don't like to admit that they failed, that they aren't able to do it, uh, and so they'd rather just rewrite the rule um, than say you know I, I'm having a real hard time getting my get myself over this particular bar. This thing. Well, it's, it's occupy the Bible. <laughs> you know, we don't really know what we're about, but we're going to occupy the Bible, you know? And, and, I, and I think that's very much true. Something that, has re- I've said this before, something that's really changed me just a, of late was uh, Father Brian Berry was telling me of a professor that he knew who, who said, uh, it's interesting how people define struggling with something. That a man will come in and say, Ah, Father, in confession, I struggle with pornography. I I view it every day. Well, okay, Um, you're not struggling with pornography. You're viewing pornography. Struggling with pornography means you you have this passion to view it, 
and you're doing all that you can through counseling, through prayer, by the name of Jesus, by reading scripture, by calling friends and saying, hey, I'm struggling with this. There's even things you can get on that if you go on, I have uh, priest friends who have this. If they go on their computer and go on to a site they're not supposed to, it sends an alert to um, other friends, Christian friends of theirs, and they call you and say, what are you doing? Nothing? Okay, that's two sins, <laughs> right? And so that's struggling with sin. And I'm like, wow, that has like made the struggle so much better and harder, but better for me just since I've heard that. Because like, you know, I'd be like, oh, I'm struggling. Oh, Lord, uh, did it work? Did the Jesus prayer work? Nope, passion's still there. Okay, I'll give in, you know? And that's how I do away with the passion, by giving into it. Well, that's not struggling with it. That's submitting to it. Struggling with it is, in, and the whole question came up with, um, that basically they said, well, how can Jesus really understand the struggle with temptation when he couldn't give in to sin, right? Which, of course, is one of those questions where you try to apply reason to the, the mystery of the incarnation. But the professor's answer was, he struggled with sin more than you will, uh, with temptation more than you ever will. Because the person who can give in, you know, tends to struggle less than the person who can't when the temptation is there and is strong. And I was like, wow, that is a different twist. I had never thought of that before. And it, it's really helped me lately. Because when I go to give in, I say, have you struggled, Michael? No. I talk to myself a lot, which is why I don't like having this thing on me. Um, you know, have you struggled with this? No. You're going to give in? You uh, was going to, you know? Uh, but now I can't. i got to struggle with it, right? And we confuse struggling with not struggling. We get it, you know, we're not struggling with it. But look in our culture. Now, this is an oversimplification. It used to be that fornication was wrong. Then it was fornication's wrong, right? Then it was, well, fornication is okay, but adultery is wrong. Then it was, well, fornication is okay and adultery is wrong unless it's an unhappy marriage, right? Or unless you're separated. I have people truly come to me, Christians, and will say, we're separating. Do you think we should date other people? Really? <laughs> right? Uh, evangelicals have a good saying, not free to marry, you're not free to date, right? Um, so, so then it was, well, adultery is wrong unless the marriage or unless you're unhappy. Or adultery is wrong unless your, your spouse is not meeting your needs. Okay? Then you're actually doing them a favor because you're not... I've heard this. I'm not kidding. I have heard this. I'm trying to help my spouse, Father, because I don't want to put her... I've been trying to put her on pressure to do this XYZ thing that creeps her out and I finally have released her from the pressure. And I, you know, it's not that I'm giving my heart to these people. I'm just living out that fantasy. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I'm like struck between like wanting to call the guy an idiot and then and, and being pastoral. You know what I mean? But we, 
people buy into this. I was, I'm really doing my wife a favor because I'm no longer putting pressure on her. And then we went from that to homosexuality, and soon we're going to be in polygamy. And I guarantee you, and you might think I'm crazy, but within 50 years, pedophilia will be making the push for legal change. Oh, and God. yeah, and, and I believe that too. People will think you're crazy, but I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, um, so, um, so, you know, that's an over, oversimplification, but these things, you know, are happening. And I mean, you know why Three's Company was so funny? Because what Jack was doing was actually kind of wrong, right? It's not as funny on Friends because it's not considered wrong. So they have to go to the next step where the lesbian ex-wife is having the, for it to be funny. Do you see what I mean? Because you've got to push the boundaries for it to be kind of funny because there's got to be something about it that's a little bit wrong. So the fact that Joey is, how you doing, hooking up with someone, that's not as funny because of course he's going to hook up with her. What would be kind of funny is if Joey didn't hook up with the girl, right? That would be funny. See, and that's what, how we've changed in, over time. And that we begin looking, you know, I, re, I remember a niece saying to me, um, well, this was back in the 90s, and she's like, but don't you think God is kind of chilled out? And I said, well, let's think about that theologically, honey, okay? God is chilled out. So he was like really uptight. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know? And what we're doing is we're putting a human view onto God rather than seeing true humanity found in who Jesus is. We want to bring Jesus down to be a regular Joe rather than have our humanity exalted. In That's why no one gets the ascension. No one comes to church on Ascension Day. They don't get the, that humanity has not only been delivered from the grave, it's being taken with Christ into the heavenly places and seated at the right hand of the Father. You know? It's humanity being lifted up, not Jesus being torn down. But, you know, but that makes us more comfortable. Right? That makes us more comfortable. All right. Um... I'm going to read, I'm, I'm stuck between what does the Bible actually say about the Bible, uh, and this by Justin Terry, but I'm going to read this one by Justin Terry, and we didn't get to the Apocrypha, which is what you were alluding to earlier. Uh, I can't, I gotta, I'm, I'm going to um, the McKinnon Christmas party, even though it's Advent, it's at <laughs> 6 o'clock in East Hampton, Connecticut, so I've got to get down there for that. Um, but thank you, though. Um, Justin Terry is, I believe, the dean of um, Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge. He is dean and president of Trinity School for Ministry. Um, And this is something, it's called A Case for Evangelical Anglicanism. And it kind of will be a bridge from our discussion on the importance and primacy of Scripture for us as Anglicans uh, to where we're going next time, which is looking at the evangelical character and the Catholic nature of Anglicanism. So it will be kind of a bridge for you. So this is Justin Terry, called A Case for Evangelical Anglicanism. He wrote it on, well, at least this was published on December 4th, I don't know. Anyway, I grew up in one of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches in Southampton, UK. 
It was a great church and I loved it. We had, we had 45 minute sermons every Sunday morning. Uh, I got to live up to that. Uh, and evening, and they were the highlights of the week. I remember being astonished to find out that so many of my friends did not go to church and I felt disappointed for them. When I went to university, I discovered evangelical Anglicanism and was fascinated by its biblical liturgy. And I hope everyone notices in our new worship booklets that after every prayer, there are scriptural citations to show you where that's from. By its biblical liturgy and the seriousness of thought that lay behind it. I also came to respect the Anglo-Catholicism of the college chapel. Okay. Um, that's not in there. Okay. The, 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 the reference to Anglo-Catholicism is not the, not, not the cheers. Okay. Through those experiences and through my reading and reflection since then, I have become increasingly attracted to evangelical Anglicanism. That is an Anglicanism that's grounded in the authority of Scripture as opposed to revisionist. Okay. Um, and uh, where am I? And want to say why I recommend training for Christian leadership in this tradition, that is evangelical Anglicanism. Whether we are conservative or charismatic evangelicals or Anglo-Catholics um, or or evangelical Anglican. So regardless of where you are, this is where you would want to train, and this is why. The word evangelical, quote-unquote, is used in many different ways these days, and there is much debate about its meaning. My preference is for J.I. Packer's six distinctives of evangelicalism, which are endorsed by John Stott and Alistair McGrath, all three of whom are prominent evangelical Anglicans. Now, John Stott, God rest his soul, just died about a month ago, I think. Um, but he is a premier evangelical Anglican. J.I. Packer is another. He's actually a priest in our diocese, the Anglican Network in, in Canada. Um, and uh, Alistair McGrath is uh, a priest in the Church of England. Okay. Um, so here's, uh, here are the points. Number one. The supreme authority, so supreme authority, primacy, authority but supreme, the supreme authority of Scripture for knowledge of God and as a guide to Christian living. That's one definition of being an evangelical. Okay, I would translate that as the primacy of Scripture. The majesty of Jesus Christ as incarnate God and Lord and the Savior of sinful humanity. Second point. Third point. The Lordship of the Holy Spirit. That is, that our lives must be submitted to the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit submitted to us, which is what we like to do a lot. The need for personal conversion. Okay. To grow in our faith more and more into the likeness of God. Five, the priority of evangelism for both individual Christians and for the church as a whole. In other words, don't keep it a secret. Okay. Six, the importance of Christian community for spiritual nourishment, fellowship, and growth. I would say the 
essential need for that and uh, through by fellowship, word, and sacrament, but that's his way of saying that. Okay. Could you go through those six again? Okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll, try, I'll copy this and send it in notes for class two so you'll have it, but I'll just do it really quickly. The supreme, the supreme authority of Scripture for knowledge of God and as a guide to Christian living, I would translate that as the primacy of Scripture, containing all things necessary for salvation. Two, the majesty of Jesus Christ as incarnate God and Lord and the Savior of sinful humanity. Three, the Lordship of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who's Lord over my life, not me. That's why when someone says in this day and age, I was just watching Friends, actually, speaking of Joey, uh, um, last night while I was eating dinner, and Rachel went in to get a tattoo, and she was afraid to get the tattoo because she was dating Ross, and Ross didn't want her to get a tattoo. And so Phoebe said, not that I really watched this show, Phoebe says to, to Rachel, who's the boss of you? Who's the boss of you? Is Ross the boss of you? No. Who's the boss of you? And she's like, you? <laughs> and she's like, No. You're the boss of you, right? That is the, that's the, uh, the concept embraced by our culture. Yep. You belong to you. Your body is yours. The only problem with that is it's not true. We belong to God, okay? So when someone says, who's your Lord? Who's your master? Who's the boss of you? The Holy Spirit, okay? And my wife, okay. So, all right. Um, the need for personal conversion, Bob, was number four. Five, the priority of evangelism for both individual Christians and for the church as a whole. And six, the importance of Christian community for spiritual nourishment, fellowship, and growth. So I would say that by those definitions, although most people coming here would probably say that we're more of an Anglo-Catholic church, I would argue we're an evangelical church. Yeah, you know, but anyway. All right. So he goes on to say, here we see the evangelical commitment to the Bible as not only being the word of human authors, but also the word of God. Um, I love it in dialogue with the Eastern Orthodox Church. There was a phrase, divinely inspired, humanly expressed. And I wish I could get into that, but we don't have time. And I'm going to pull away from Justin Terry just for a second for those who are following on the tape. Um, to say that, look, the human beings that were the, the human authors of the scriptures were not robots. It wasn't like the cartoon where someone's in your ear, you know, in the word, I mean, in the beginning was the word, in the word, in the beginning was the world, not world, word, Shh, erase that, word, right. No, right? No, no, right, yeah. Don't write, I thought you wanted me to write, yeah. So it wasn't like that, Okay. Um, however, however, think of the, the, the Holy Spirit. You're making coffee, right? So you put a mug in, and you have one of those filters on, okay? And you got the coffee beans in there, okay? Now, the coffee beans is the particular person. So you got Mark, who's just regular roast, right? You got uh, Luke, who's French vanilla, Right? You got Matthew, who is pumpkin spice. pumpkin spice and everything nice. And you got John, who's macadamia nut, chocolate macadamia nut, right? Okay, 
then the Holy Spirit is not only the filter, but is also the water that's being poured over these beans. And what comes out is the word of God. And then we drink it. Okay? What's that? Oh, yeah, we should do that. Should do that, yeah. Okay? So there's this excellent way of saying it in our dialogue with the Orthodox Church, with the big O, that says, divinely inspired, but humanly expressed. So personality does come out in the writing. You know, you can tell John is different from Luke. Okay? Um, uh, For example, uh, I was... um, identified by once by someone who had never met me in person because they said uh, I was out on Jesus March and uh, they said, oh, hey, Father, it's kind of cool that you're out here with us evangelicals. And I said, oh, thanks. And uh, he said, well, it's good to see you. And I said, you too, God's peace. And he said, God's peace. Wait a minute, you're not Father Michael, are you? And I said, yeah, how do you know? He says, I'm, I'm Mike, uh, what was Mike's last name? I forget, it doesn't matter anyway. I'm, um, unless you're listening, Mike, and I'm sorry I can't remember your last name. But I'm Mike's roommate. And he says, you leave a message for Mike all the time, trying to convert him to your kind of <laughs> Christian, and you always end it with God's peace. So he identified me by something that I said. Do you see my, my? so when we speak, You know, you can kind of pick up, you know, one time, I hope my sister doesn't listen to this, but one time my, um, supposedly my mother sent out an email to all her children. I read it and said, mom didn't write this, Kathy wrote it. How did I know? Well, for one, it, it didn't sound like my mother. Secondly, there was grammatical mistakes, and my mother is, is very, you know, you don't make grammatical mistakes, you know. But just the way things were said sounded like my sister and not my mother. Now, did my sister just type it and send it without my mother's knowledge? I'm not saying that. Maybe my mother kind of gave her the idea, and Kathy articulated it and said, does this rightly articulate what you're trying to say? Okay. But um, but anyway, uh, that would be a good way of saying that, you know, divinely inspired, humanly expressed. There is personality. Paul has run on sentences, okay? Um, so there is personality. Okay, now back to, um, to him here. So he says, here we see the evangelical commitment to the Bible as not only being the word of human authors, but also the word of God the unique person and work of Jesus Christ by which sinners may be justified before a holy God by putting their faith in him. The encounter with God's spirit who inspired the scriptures and speaks through them. The call to personal, though not individualistic, which is a huge distinction. People say, do you have have an individual relationship with Jesus? No, I have a personal one and there's a big difference. You have the faith of the family, and when I come to Christ, I receive that faith. I don't pick and choose what I believe. I receive the faith of the covenant into my heart personally. That's different than an individual relationship with God and an individual conversion, okay? Um, I would argue a more Catholic position, which is you can't have an individual relationship with God. God never called individuals. Even Abraham, all the covenant was... Uh, was in his seed, as it says, okay, in his loins. 
Okay. Anyway, we'll get into that in a, in a different class. Um, not, though not individualistic repentance, the commission to proclaim the gospel in all the world and the commitment to the life of the church. It is set of short and simple statements, but between them, they define the movement well. I understand Packer's distinctives to mean that these are the Christian doctrines that need to be stressed if we are to keep the gospel front and center. It is not to belittle any other teachings of the historic creeds, but it is to say that unless these are deliberately underlined, they have a disconcerting way of migrating to the margins of church life. The gospel is always unsettling people, and the sinful desire to tame it is ever-present. I like the way he says that, to tame scripture. It's uncomfortable, and we, we, we want to tame it. You know, calm down. <laughs> All right. Um, evangelical Anglicanism. Anglicanism is Reformed Catholicism, with a capital C. Thomas Cramner, he was the first Archbishop of Canterbury at the time of the English Reformation. Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop in Canterbury at the time of King Henry VIII, was able to bring Martin Luther's rediscovery, rediscovery, not innovation, of justification by faith alone into the heart of the Church of England. It has since spread around the world in Anglican and Episcopal churches and is now the third largest Christian, he says, denomination. I'm going to argue against that someday, but we'll let it go for now since he's the president and dean of, uh, of the school. Uh, Christian denomination in the world with about 77 million members. So Anglicanism is, the I would say, not denomination, but tradition. It's the third largest tradition in the world. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism. Anglican doctrine and practice have been traditionally defined by the 1662 Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles, which originate in the work of Thomas Cramner, but are deeply rooted in the Scriptures. Okay, so... Scripture, but he's citing some of, not all, to my chagrin, the, of the Anglican formularies. Both are deeply rooted in the Scriptures. There is a particular respect for the teaching of the Church Fathers, that is, the prominent Christian teachers up to about 451, that's the date of the Fourth Ecumenical Council, and of the four Ecumenical Councils of the Church during that time. As Lancelot Andrews once put in a sermon, Anglicanism has, and this should sound very familiar to you, because I shared this with you at class number one and sent it to you in class notes. One canon, reduced to writing by God himself, two testaments, three creeds, four general councils, five centuries, and the series of fathers in that period, the centuries, that is, before Constantine and two after, that determine the boundary of our faith. Okay, so that should sound familiar to you. I, I'm reading this mainly because it's a bridge to our next class, but also so you don't think I'm just making all this stuff up. I mean, here's, I'm an Anglo-Catholic, at least that's how I'm identified. Here is the dean of the most evangelical seminary, at least in North America, if not the world, and we're in agreement on most things here. So this is, I think, it would be better than if I pulled out something written by another Anglo-Catholic and said, see, see, we agree, okay? 
Don't let me let you leave without telling you what your next book is, by the way. Okay. Um, in the early days, I'm sort of almost done. In the early days of the modern ecumenical movement, these values were reworked into the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral, which specifies Anglicans in terms of the Bible as containing all things necessary to salvation, the Apostles and Nicene Creeds, the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, and the Episcopate, that is the office of bishop, locally adapted. These are seen as the non-negotiables of Anglicanism. And we're going to talk about the Lambeth Quadrilateral at our next class. They're seen as the non-negotiables of Anglicanism because they were the non-negotiables of the patristic church. Okay, One canon of scripture, one sacramental life, one creedal faith, and one apostolic ministry, that of bishop, priest, and deacon ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles. Okay. Recently, some Anglicans in the West have been seeking a substantial reworking of traditional pit positions on doctrine and practice. Seeing Cramner's prayer book and articles as outdated for modern and postmodern generations, evangelical Anglicans have resisted this movement, preferring to question the assumptions of modernity and postmodernity to reaffirm the teaching of Thomas Cramner, Richard Hooker, and Lancelot Andrews, three people whose names should be becoming more familiar to you because I've quoted them uh, quite a bit in the first two classes. These formative Anglican divines and many others since uphold all six of the distinctives of evangelicalism, those six things that were named earlier. This should not come as a great surprise since they are, I believe, simply affirmations of biblical Christianity, what I would call biblical Catholicism, which is who Anglicans are. We are Bible Catholics. What excited me about Anglicanism when I first discovered it and what I've come to see all the more clearly with the benefit of further study is that it offers the historical anchoring that many evangelicals seek. Some of you here were, were once evangelicals and I think can relate to that. You have found something that is more historically anchored in your Anglican experience than what you had before in independent evangelical circles. It allows us to root our convictions in the riches of the tradition of Christian thought and prayer that faithful followers of Jesus Christ have passed down to us. We can discover an ancestry that goes back hundreds of years, in fact, I would argue, right back to the teaching of Jesus himself, with great theologians, liturgists, and saints whose writings can help us to be the disciples that Jesus calls us to be. It also makes, makes us more clearly part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The two issues that I had to rethink, coming from my essentially Baptist background, were infant baptism and the role of bishops. This is not the place to go into the theological debates on these issues, but what was very striking for me as I rethought them was that in both of these discussions, the authority on which the arguments were built was biblical teaching. It was also highly significant for me that one of the theologians about whom I had heard most about from the pulpit growing up, Martin Luther, made a strong case for both infant baptism and for bishops. 
In fact, it would not have been Martin Luther's intent for the, uh, the movement to have lost apostolic succession. It was really an accident of history, and there are some Lutheran churches in Scandinavia that have retained uh, what we would understand to be the fullness of apostolic succession. It is within the evangelical Anglican tradition that I have come to embrace the charismatic movement, the ministry of healing, and having time to wait on God to wait on God fit naturally oh and to wait in time to wait on God fit naturally into the Anglican liturgy. I've also come to find mainly through students at Trinity how much evangelical Anglicanism has to offer Anglo-Catholics especially in the tradition of expository preaching and the emphasis on evangelism. And I would say I'm a product of that. Handing on the evangelical Anglican tradition. A tradition as rich and complex as evangelical Anglicanism is not quickly learnt nor rapidly passed on. Those who are led are to lead Anglican and Episcopal churches need a deep formation in this tradition if they are to be able to introduce others to it and to nurture the faithful in it. They need to inhibit this tradition, inhabit, I'm sorry, inhibit, no, they need to inhabit this tradition with its pattern of morning and evening prayer and regular Eucharist using ancient liturgies. In other words, his point, although he's not saying this word, is that to be truly evangelical, you must be a Catholic. And a true Catholic is biblical, is evangelical. Okay. They also need to learn from professors who are able to shape their teaching of the Bible, church history, systematic and practical theology in the light of it. Trinity School for Ministry offers just such a formation where our teaching and our prayers are shaped by this great tradition. Um, the rest of it is why you should go to Holy, I mean, to Trinity School. So you might want to read that box. But anyway, I will send this along to you. But I think it makes a good bridge uh, for us uh, going into uh, next time. Uh, thank you so much. I hope you found today um, uh, edifying. What I'd like you to do is to order. If you write this down. Vernon Staley, Vernon Staley, S-T-A-L-E-Y, The Catholic Religion, A Manual for Instruction for Members of the Anglican Communion. So Vernon Staley, S-T-A-L-E-Y, by the way, he was writing like a couple of centuries ago. The Catholic Religion, A Manual for Instruction for Members of the Anglican Communion. Order this book and read it. You might find it at WIPF, W-I-P-F, and Stock, S-T-O-C-K, Publishers, WIPF, and Stock Publishers. I have to tell you, this is one of my very favorite books. When I read books, I underline like what really gets to me. I underline the entire book. This book, to me, is... If I had to explain Anglican... Now, it's not that there aren't areas like anyone who's writing. I thought this was an excellent book that we just read. But I, there's areas where I have real differences with the author, right? I have less so with Vernon Staley. But, you know, no one's perfect apart from... it's. You know, this isn't the Word of God. It didn't make the canon, okay? But 
for me, man, this is as close as it gets to like saying, if you want to know who, what, where, when, why, and how uh, regarding who we are as Anglicans, read, mark, and learn and inwardly digest this book. If you secretly are not reading any of the books, um, don't tell me that, but read this one, okay? Read this one. This is hugely important. Karen? It's also actually online. Oh, is it? Free, yes. Free. You gave me the link. Oh, well, I don't remember half of what I do. If you can maybe send that to me again and I can send it to people, then you can get it for free. And you have to, then you need to read it on the computer. Yeah, yeah, so great.